Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Joshua. And I'm Grayson. The date is December 4th, 2018. And this is episode 21, Get Your Acts Together, an analysis of emergency management legislation. In this episode, we'll explore the true and often unsettling origins of the laws that govern our country's preparedness, and why the needs of modern disaster management are often left without legislative support. To this end, we will be speaking with our good friend Jack Lindsay, who has written extensively on the topic. We'll also be discussing some up-and-coming research, as well as the tool of the trade. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Josh, when you think emergency management legislation, uh, what comes to mind? Uh, something boring. Maybe uh, what I would read before I go to sleep. That's right. And, you know, that sort of sleep aid conception that I had about emergency management uh, and the legislation around it might be why it took me so long to read the act that governs our provincial emergency management. And, you know, once I got into it, however, it's anything but it's, you know, our country's legislation begins with a bang in World War I. Uh, you go through Japanese internment, the FLQ crisis. Uh, it turns into an act that's too powerful to ever be used again. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, our provinces get dragged into this civil defense era, have to set up their own systems. And, uh, you know, it, it, it really is a, a wild ride in terms of our legislation. And I only learned this by talking to Jack Lindsay, who as you'll see, ends off the interview by saying, we need a fresh start. We need to just scrap everything we've got and start over. So not boring at all. Well, you're really selling me. You know, I want to just run to the uh, Queen's printer right now and uh, get a fresh stack of uh, legislation. <laughs> That's right. And I think I'd, I'd recommend that to our listeners here, um, especially if you're not familiar with your own provinces or your own municipal legislation. Maybe grab that and you can follow along as we evaluate our country's journey through legislating emergency management. So here we have Jack Lindsay in an interview recorded July 30th, 2018. Um, hi, my name is Jack Lindsay. I'm Associate Professor and Chair in the Applied Disaster and Emergency Studies Department at Brandon University. Jack Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us once again for this epic podcast. We're here today to talk about the various and many acts in the Canadian emergency management sphere. Uh, how did emergency management legislation really get started in Canada? Well, that is a, an interesting question. The emergency management legislation, really, um, if you were to look at, say, the Emergency Management Act at the federal government level, is, is only just you know a, a decade old. Uh, what we have to really look is is what was the legislation that um, preceded that, what led us towards today's emergency management legislation, and uh, that really goes back to um, the First World War and the War Measures Act. So it's a long history in some ways, but it's also only been very recently than what we what we would think of as modern emergency management is starting to to creep into the legislation. Probably the best way to look at them is to is first talk about federally, because that's where that's where it started. So when Canada joined into the First World War, really as a um, participant as part of the Commonwealth, when when the UK declared war on Germany. Uh, Canada was brought in right by the by default, and brought in the War Measures Act to help support uh, what would happen um, 
in terms of local measures in Canada to support the, the war. Uh, it gave the government control really across to the governor and council, which is the cabinet. So very little parliamentary oversight, very much the prime minister and cabinet ministers making the decisions. And then through the regulations that were created under that act, uh, an ability for uh, a number of quite drastic uh, uh, impacts on our civil rights and, and other measures. The main pieces under the War Measures Act that the government was looking at were things around censorship and, and control of information, uh, the power to be able to arrest and detain and, and deport people, and then control of the war industry and the, the pieces of infrastructure that would be important. So control of the harbors, uh, control of transportation by land, air, or water, uh, control of transportation of people, as well as all the trading and exporting, uh, production and manufacturing. We didn't want, you know, a, a Canadian ammunition company to get a contract providing uh, ammunition to the mm. combatants. And then finally, the appropriation and control of property. So very broad, right? Things that, that our government doesn't normally uh, get directly involved in. Um, we're, you know, we're even, even then... <laughs> Even though we um, still had limits on who could vote and a lot of other things, uh, still a, a free democracy. And, and to be able to take away some of those those rights was even then uh, notable. So um, the lessons from uh, World War One and the, the intervening fears around the growth of communism, uh, which in Canada was a, was a fear that was related into the uh, the co-op the cooperative movements and and Canada's uh, political left. Uh, by by the start of the Second World War, um, we we reacted or, or sort of brought forward again the War Measures Act. But this time, there was a, a drafted set of the regulations for the defense of Canada. Uh, they'd been prepared prior to the outbreak of war, and they they'd really condensed what had happened from the First World War and made them more bureaucratic, and it was less. Uh, piecemeal um but of course that led to the internment of the you know over 20,000 Japanese uh, people uh, many of them were born in Canada uh, Canadian citizens or naturalized Canadians uh, some had fought for Canada in the first world war uh, that we basically you know, with the government's permission uh, through the war measures act so in essence legally we took their homes took their businesses um, confiscated all their fishing boats, uh, sold all their property and used the money to pay for their internment. And then at the end of the war, uh, very strictly controlled where um, those internees would, would then resettle. And that's significant because it was wrong in, in looking back on it now. Uh, but at the time, it was all done within legislation passed by our, our government. So we have to really realize that uh, when we hand a government significant emergency powers, we also have this responsibility to exercise those powers properly. And in the Second World War, they were they were exercised uh, improperly. And certainly, in in my view, and I'm sure um, most of your listeners would agree that that the reaction to the Japanese was um, unnecessarily harsh. 
So some pretty grim history behind the War Measures Act. What was the breaking point for that? Because that's not around anymore. No. Um, after the war, um, there was uh, a series of national sort of transitional acts. And then the Korean War started, which uh, gave us an Emergency Powers Act and still is echoed in our current Emergencies Act as you know, under the heading International Emergencies. Um, so you know, it's interesting, from 1939 to 1954, 15 years, Canada operated under emergency powers. And we, we might think of that as something that happens in developing countries under a dictator, or, but we've had that in our past as well. We've gone for um, a stretch of time where, where a lot of our normal legislation was was superseded by emergency legislation so again uh, not something to be um, just trifled with and it, to answer your question more directly the flq crisis the um, smaller scale bombings and some murders and other uh, acts of domestic terrorism uh, culminated in of course the october crisis when they they kidnapped a british official and and a quebec labor minister that prompted trudeau the first trudeau uh, Pierre Trudeau to to institute uh, the War Measures Act again, largely to be able to uh, direct the military domestically and also uh, to give some powers around the arrests and detain and detaining people for questioning that we wouldn't have had um, exactly. But after the FLQ crisis uh, in in nineteen early nineteen seventy seventy one seventy two, it was realized that we couldn't go on that way. And so that was the start of the change to towards having a proper separate emergency act. The, that separate emergencies act, the Emergencies Act of 1988, 18 years after the um, FLQ crisis, that's the one that we still have today. That is still the federal legislation that that controls uh, how the federal government and its departments exercise powers in times of disaster, uh, and it's quite clear about the scale that the disaster has to reach, whether that's um, uh, public welfare, uh, public order, international emergency, or a war emergency. It is still the way that we would declare war on another country. Uh, but coming, reflecting the constitutional divide of, of powers, the federal government's Emergencies Act really only kicks in if we have an event that clearly uh, overwhelms um, a province in that province is requesting assistance or is uh, overwhelming a, a number of provinces. So that takes care of the federal side of things. And, and to my knowledge, the Emergencies Act hasn't ever been enacted. Is that still correct? Yeah, it, again, it's, it's not been um, declared. I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that um, we're a geographically big country. Uh, and so for an event to occur that would actually impact on multiple provinces to the to the level required to to meet the you know exceed the bar as it were within the emergencies act i don't know a really big hurricane across the um, east coast provinces uh perhaps uh the predicted very large earthquake in bc might trigger mm -hmm. it uh a very bad 1918 style pandemic across the country uh, might trigger it, but uh, something, the Fort McMurray fires, uh, the um, SARS outbreak, the 97 flooding in Manitoba, the floods in Quebec, you know, these are, are big events, but they are geographically contained well within a province and within the province's powers to 
to work on. So what would the benefit of declaring that national state of emergency, that Emergencies Act, be in a in a non-wartime crisis like the the large ones, the large possible ones you were describing? Yeah, I believe the a pandemic, a, a disease outbreak, probably uh, SARS or you know a newly evolving disease, uh, or the reemergence of a, a disease that we thought we had handled that maybe is has come back to haunt us. I think it would give the, the nation some uh, control over cross uh, boundary travel between between provinces. Uh, it would, perhaps would help with control over the distribution of, of certain supplies and, and things. It would really be a, a national coordination measure. And the Emergencies Act also makes it clear, again, uh, respecting the Constitution, that the federal government in public welfare, public order emergencies uh, cannot conflict with what's happening provincially, that they have to plan their actions in a way and with consultation with the provinces. For international emergencies and war emergencies, which are more constitutionally a federal matter, the you know, the defense of our sovereignty and, and defense and national defense, it's uh, much more in the federal government's hands. And war emergency basically is cr- pretty close to carte blanche um, for the national cabinet to do whatever they think they need to do in times of war. Hmm. So, so if the Federal Emergencies Act is only 30 years old, when did provincial legislation start coming around? Well, the provincial legislation really started up in the early 50s. Um, the provinces had been, had been dragged into uh, civil defense during World War II, largely the B.C. and the eastern provinces that were more at risk from naval um, invasion or potentially from bombing, because by the Second World War, we had aircraft that could cross the Atlantic. The question of of directing the um, civil defense measures was federal. Uh, it was seen as a, a national defense uh, issue, but it was actually assigned to the, the federal government's uh, health and human services sort of department, because it was really seen about the health of the civilians in, in times of attack. So the federal government set out some direction and then expected the provinces to follow. Uh, so after the war, uh, the provinces all uh, took on the task of having their own civil defense legislation, uh, mostly focused on the threat of war and, of course, the advent of the Cold War and the threat of intercontinental ballistic uh, missiles and, and nuclear war. Uh, that was, you know, through the 50s, the... Uh, the big scare. Um, you probably know about the uh, Calgary evacuation exercise in the 50s, and I show that video clip to my students from the CBC and say, can you think of anything that would get a city today to evacuate a, or to try to evacuate a quarter of its population just to find out if it could? And, and we just aren't that scared anymore as a population about, about our hazards. So, the provinces all began with some sort of uh, provincial civil defense, emergency management legislation. Manitoba went through a few uh, quick versions, but more or less from the 1950s through until the 1970s, uh, we had a pretty traditional style civil defense legislation. In Manitoba, it's interesting that, that the legislation referred to uh, civil disasters and war emergencies. And, and differentiated the powers that we would use in times of a flood from the powers you'd use in times of a nuclear war. Uh, 1970, they they dropped the the war and 
natural part and just started referring to emergencies and disasters. And the merger started of, of the powers as well, that there wasn't, weren't distinct powers anymore. And that's, I believe, one of the reasons why when we look at the legislation now, we might scratch our heads uh, at the provincial level about why some of the powers are there. Um, things that we probably couldn't see ourselves using in a flood or a wildfire or a tornado um, may have originally shown up in legislation with the nuclear war threat in mind. That makes sense. And are the provincial legislation, is is it pretty uniform across Canada from that civil defense route? Yes. Yeah, the, as a result, um, there was certainly a, a common set of uh, powers that that uh, were covered under all the different legislation. Uh, in some cases, if you were to look at the legislation out east um, between you know, PEI and Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, um, in many places it, it is almost identical, um, very similar phrasing. Uh, over time, there's been some drift, but for the most part, uh, when I looked at all the legislation in Canada, um, I found you could group them into six main um, areas. I recognize that they all talked about um, authorizing um, necessary action. Uh, they all talk about controlling where people are or where um, people are going. They all talk about how to use and control resources. Uh, they all have some element of being able to require uh, service from citizens in times of emergencies. Uh, some, all essentially all of them, have um, powers to search or arrest or fine um, to, to different degrees, but they're all there. And then there is a sort of miscellaneous category where regional differences fit in. But again, those first ones, necessary action, controlling people, using property, requiring service, um, all have you know, pretty straight lines right back to that early uh, Defense of Canada regulation and the War Measures Act. Are those still relevant? Are they still useful? Well, that's a that's a very good question. Um, the uh, Federal Emergencies Act has a requirement that whenever Canada declares a state of emergency, that there's a full commission held or investigation into the reasons. That in itself might be one of the reasons why we've never declared a national emergency. Uh, the provinces don't have that same requirement when we have local authorities declaring states of emergency and suspending civil rights we don't really have any third-party investigation. Um, a number of us have, have called over the years for something similar to the um, Transportation Safety Board or um, others that organizations, when we look at near misses or the, you know, the use of emergency or other powers, to learn from it, and we don't have that in the, in the system right now. What sort of checks and balances do exist for provincial states of emergency? Uh, the provinces provide the ministers responsible with uh, an ability to approve or, or cancel municipal emergencies. Uh, that varies. Um, Manitoba has, has put some uh, stiffer rules in just recently, for example, that, that uh, would prevent a, a local authority if they declared an emergency for a, a flooding and the minister felt that, it, that the powers weren't required, that a state of emergency wasn't necessary. It also now limits that municipality from declaring again for the same, the same event uh, to try to prevent municipalities from just um, declaring emergencies as a uh, maybe as a, a political or public relations move to bring you know to bring attention to their problem or 
for other reasons. That makes sense that there'd be some degree of control over the municipal uh, acts because I know they're quite varied, uh, whereas there might be a little bit more commonality between the provincial acts. Right. But one of the things that we have to recognize, and, and maybe that's where your last question was was leading towards, is that in this situation, the, the provinces are not acting under um, sort of any sort of federal legislation. The provincial laws are passed under the, the, the province's uh, constitutional um, powers and, and reflect the division of powers in the Constitution that that give local authorities, or sorry, provincial authorities, the, the right to manage um, licensing of, of businesses, manage the distribution and, and subdivision and control of land. Um, a lot of the things that we would think of as being the kinds of powers that you might want to use in times of um, disaster, and of course the power to, to establish and manage municipalities. Um, so sometimes I have students that, that believe that that because local authorities answer to the provinces, that the provinces then answer to the federal government, but that's not the case in, hmm. in emergency. Um, the provincial emergency management agencies are not creatures of, um, weren't created by federal legislation. They are um, separate uh, pursuing their own mandates. This maybe the same way uh, in parallel that you would think about uh, the fact we've got Parks Canada, but then we all have our own provincial um, parks departments, right? It's uh, the, both levels of government pursue the same agenda, but uh, provincial parks aren't just aren't just baby federal parks, if you know what I mean. What sort of interjurisdictional or interprovincial problems might arise from that in terms of communication or working together? That would be um, the advantage of the Emergencies Act, that if we did have um, a situation that was affecting multiple provinces, um, so let's take that uh, East Coast hurricane that may have been causing extensive damage um, through New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and PEI, maybe up into Newfoundland, maybe across parts of Quebec. Um, If there was seen to be um, coordination problems between the provincial efforts, then the federal government might see itself in a position to uh, help resolve those those conflicts. I think they would do everything in their um, within their sway with, to do that without having to declare a state of emergency. As I mentioned, declaring a federal state of emergency brings with it a lot of um, repercussion and uh, a lot of um, under the microscope. It will put the federal government under the microscope in terms of why they had to declare uh, a national emergency. And I don't think Public Safety Canada is in a position to be examined that closely around emergency management. So. Hmm. So I don't know. I, I would think that uh, that would be the case. But right now, if if there was a situation where um, provinces were uh, at odds with each other, or maybe something around um, influenza, or around a pandemic, not necessarily influenza, but but any disease, maybe if there was uh, you know one province saying we'll give free vaccines, another province saying. We can't afford that. People are going to have to pay for it. We wouldn't want everyone just pouring across the provincial border to get vaccines next door. Like there might be some of those kinds of issues, but uh, really, because we're a big country, um, you know, our provinces like Ontario, most part of the same size as an entire FEMA region that would make up, you know, six or seven or eight states. So our 
cross-provincial border issues are probably not nearly as frequent or um, politically wrought as as it would be in the states where the jurisdictions are smaller and and the federal role is different. So we really are just protected by our size in a lot of cases. It, yeah, that, and I I think that uh, we need to really recognize that we are protected by our constitution. Um, Parliament in, in England clearly wanted to make sure that our constitution divided powers and, and didn't leave any question as to who should be in charge. And even though emergency management wasn't one of the powers at the time, I think it's it's easy to see the connections between the kinds of actions we have to take in, in emergencies and in mitigation and recovery with the powers that are predominantly provincial powers. So. So with all of these five or six themes you mentioned, the uh, authorized necessary mm-hmm. actions, control location of people, use resources, require service, and the search and arrest, and then the sort of province-specific ones, all of those seem very heavily slanted towards a short, uh, dramatic response to a disaster. They don't seem as useful for long-term recovery or the preparation mitigation. Is that a gap that exists in our legislation? Yeah, certainly. I um, not to uh, be too much of a, a plug from my own writing, but um, there's a entry coming out in the Oxford University Press. Uh, they have an online encyclopedia of hazard management, um, and I I was asked to do a case study on on Canada, and so I I looked at all of the provincial emergency management legislation and the federal legislation around mitigation and how we because um, we're looking at, at hazard governance, how we were managing um, hazards in that way. And I also looked at all of the provinces uh, at their land use management, whether that's their planning act or the municipal act or whatever it may be that controls um, subdivisions and building permits and all those things. And with the uh, really with the exception of uh, Quebec and um, the new legislation up in uh, Nunavut, uh, we do a very poor job of coordinating those things. Uh, the provincial land use legislation doesn't doesn't really see preventing hazards as a, a much of a primary uh, focus. You have to sort of do a little bit of digging around to to see that come through. And the provincial emergency management legislation seldom talks about mitigation or longer term recovery uh, in any detail as well. So that's when I start off by saying that that. Our emergency management legislation, in many ways, is limited to the Emergency Management Act, and I would I would point reader or listeners to look at what Nunavut's doing as well, where we have legislation that specifically talks about pre-event uh, hazard reduction and, and risk assessment, preparedness response, and then short and long-term recovery as being distinct phases rather than just uh, just focusing on responding and being ready to respond you know, as the preparedness piece. Do you think that's a, a root of a problem within Canadian emergency management that we keep on doing things like build in flood zones or uh, fail to prepare for common and repetitive emergencies? Is that stemming from this sort of gap in legislation or is that more of a symptom? No, I, I think that, um, well, yeah, chicken and egg a little bit about uh, I think that municipalities and provincial governments, but the municipalities in particular, are bound by the law. They have to they have to do what the legislation says, but they're also bound um, to fiscal and and uh, proper management. And so they don't have a lot of 
uh, encouragement to spend money on things that they're not legally required to be doing. So until um, the provinces can coordinate um, the idea of identifying and managing risk through things like land use planning, which is predominantly a local government function, I don't think it's surprising that local governments don't take that on. Why don't we have that requirement? Well, I don't think we have that requirement because we predominantly have a response-focused profession. Perpetuating what we have and not looking at changing it because, well, maybe we just don't know how. Fair enough. I was going to ask, uh, I mean, what needs to change and, and how do you, would one go about that? Well, at, at a provincial level, I think that uh, provincial lawmakers to look at what's happened in other other countries, um, for example, uh, in New Zealand, they have a Emergency Management Act, and it makes references across to the National Resource Management Act, which is the Land Use Planning Act, basically saying that municipalities have to identify risks and that they then have to manage those risks through mitigation, and then they have to prepare and respond to the consequences that can't be managed through mitigation uh, it's not a lot, probably just one or two lines to be added to uh, to both pieces of legislation to make that division of responsibility clear. But right now, I think in too many, um, too many situations, the land use planners feel that disasters are something that belongs to the fire department or the emergency manager, and the emergency managers don't have the experience to um, play in the same ballpark as the planners in terms of the kinds of issues that come up there. It will take some change. Is this just one of those things that we'll have to wait till the next big emergency to to figure out? Yeah, that's that's interesting. The piece in there that I haven't mentioned is, of course, the, the federal government did develop a national mitigation strategy um, back in like around 2008, didn't fund it for 10 years, and then has now put money into the, the National Disaster Mitigation Program. That has largely been helping uh, provinces with the cost of hazard risk assessment around land use surveying, around around watersheds and, and flood areas, not yet getting to the point of actually helping municipalities mitigate anything. And again, uh, it could be a whole other uh, podcast, but the the focus is always on um, hazards that are are fixed in their location, right? Like what to do around a river that floods, or what to do around a hazardous materials uh, storage facility that might leak. We end up getting our own legislation hazard by hazard because um, those agencies don't want to always be relying back on declaring a state of emergency. So I guess that you know the question comes in: Why do we do that? Why is our our provincial um, disaster and emergency legislation not good enough to use um, in a wildfire or a hazmat spill? Why or a public health outbreak? Why do we also then need to have um, separate bits floating around in legislation? And that's something I'd like to look at more um, nationally, it's something that I'm more familiar with just provincially. But maybe that goes back to answer your question, that, that uh, I think the, the events that we struggle with in the provincial emergency legislation are the events that are borderline between a routine or everyday emergency and um, the ones that would actually require those powers. And that comes back a lot more to the community that's being affected um, than it does the uh, the type of event. 
That makes sense. So really, our provincial legislation is not based in an all hazards concept in the in the way that maybe it should be. No, and again, uh, I think that's very important to to reflect back on what the hazard was that the legislation was was crafted for. And even within, and I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not a doctor, but um, within law, there's this idea about going back to look at what the what the original um, ill was that the law was passed to resolve. Why did we pass the legislation in the first place, and is that still what we're applying it to now? And and really, a lot of our provincial legislation was based on the threat of nuclear war. And and as a result of that, and federally, we've seen things like um, the National um, Emergency Stockpile, um, administered by Public Health Agency of Canada, very much aimed at the kinds of injuries and the kind of um, distribution of injuries that you would get with a nuclear blast and not really that useful for injuries from other types of hazards, right? So uh, we do have a, if I can use this analogy, we do have a very large tree now of, of emergency management legislation and actions and programs and, and things, but a lot of those roots are still um, deep in the War Measures Act and deep in that Cold War threat as well. And I do think that we need to to um, start fresh. In some countries, um, the Philippines, South Africa as well, uh, what would we do if we were just to draft a new piece of emergency management legislation, not fix the one that we've got, but just start fresh? And they they don't come up with the same thing, right? They focus more on not having the emergency rather than suspending civil rights to deal with the consequences. Wow, so a fresh start for Canada might be what's needed. It might be. And I think I think the Emergency Management Act provides a little of that federally. I, I, I fear that it, it, I think it's difficult for people at the federal level to point to our national emergency management agency in, in a clear way. And I think that uh, provincially that, that flows across a little bit, that we don't have that um, clear national leadership. Jack Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us on this epic podcast. Always great no to talk to you, and I hope to have you back again. I'm always happy to, to talk about issues. I think it's an important way for profession to grow is to, is to talk through what we all commonly face as, as challenges and, and think about ways to move forward. Wow, you know, that's a great historical uh, overview of, of how we've gotten to this place you know it sounds like we're in some ways are kind of haunted by the ghosts of legislation past i think that's exactly what it is it's we've got all of these sort of stick in the mud um policies and and laws uh and you know it, it was really just invigorating to to listen to him say that we need to have a fresh start and and i know i'm paraphrasing here but my favorite quote of the entire interview uh, was, you know, a, a new act should focus more on not having the emergency in the first place than detailing how to suspend civil rights in order to deal with it. Mind blown, for sure. Now, I, I, you know, I have to wonder, is Jack on his own like this? Is this one man's opinion? Or have you found other? Yeah, you know, that's a great segue to our journal club. So uh, kind of looking at some different uh, sources this month than we normally do for the journals that we scan. Uh, this is an article from the Alberta Law Review, which is a peer-reviewed journal uh, looking at uh, kind of scholarly review of law. And it's an article from this year uh, by Jocelyn Stacy uh, from UBC, who uh, did an article titled, Vulnerability, Canadian Disaster Law and the Beast. And this was essentially a 
uh, a review of the entire Canadian legal apparatus around disaster law, which she points out is a very understudied um, area. And she uses the beast, the Fort McMurray wildfire, as a case study for this. But uh, I think she would agree with a lot of uh, uh, Jack Lindsay's points. Um, she makes some interesting uh, uh, discussions about the importance of incorporating vulnerability into um, the legal framework. And one of her quotes is, Canadian disaster law fails to reflect foundational social science research on disaster harm. And she talks about that there's a disproportionate amount of time spent discussing national security implications and very, very little on actual disaster. And especially when it comes to things like comprehensive emergency management, all hazards planning, that sort of thing. She talks about the need for disaster laws to be linked to other areas of law, uh, such as environmental law and land use planning, like some jurisdictions do in, in other countries. And what I thought was uh, most interesting was how she kind of phrases the current concept of emergency management uh, laws with this concept of a toggle switch, which when you think about it, it's kind of unique to just emergency management legislation. So they've got like an on and off feature. So basically all, um, you know, disaster laws, whether they're federal or provincial, they have things in common, the ability to declare a state of emergency. And then two, you can take whatever action you need to, to mitigate the emergency. But it's basically either an on or off switch based on uh, whether a disaster is declared. That, I've never even thought of it that way. It's just being just part of I guess the education or something that uh, of course we only turn on the emergency management act when we need it right that's insane that's not how laws work well and also when you think about what our priorities are about continuous planning and the disaster cycle and some of those basic things those should be ongoing you know concurrent activities that happen all the time not something that you just switch on and off in a reactionary mode so anyways interesting uh interesting discussion points um the article is available uh freely to download and we've uh, included a link on our twitter feed so listen, if if you come away from this episode thinking that we have an uh, you know an unusable federal act, irreconcilable provincial acts which answer to nobody and are, are super response heavy, well, we've got a tool for you to check out if that's actually the fact. Um, and our tool of the trade today is the checklist on law and disaster risk reduction, which was developed by the United Nations Disaster Programs. Um, so this is a, you know, a checklist that's actually really meant for developing or emerging countries that maybe haven't got their laws all together yet. Uh, so grab your provincial legislation yeah. and follow Let's see along. how we do. Mm -hmm. Let's, <laughs> let's put it to the test. So let's go one for one on, on this one. Okay, so question number one on the checklist for the legal framework. Does your country have a dedicated law for disaster risk management that prioritizes disaster risk reduction and is tailored to your country context? Question number two. Do your country's law establish clear roles and responsibilities related to risk reduction for all relevant institutions from national to local levels? Do your country's laws ensure that adequate resources are budgeted for disaster risk reduction? Number four, do your country's relevant sectoral laws include provisions to reduce existing risks and prevent the creation of new risks? Number five, do your country's laws establish clear procedures and responsibilities for conducting risk assessments and ensure risk information is considered in the development process? Number six, do your country's laws establish clear procedures and responsibilities for early warning? 
Do your country's laws require education, training, and awareness raising to promote a whole-of-society approach to disaster risk reduction? Number eight, do your country's laws ensure the engagement of all relevant stakeholders, including civil society, the private sector, scientific institutions, and communities in risk reduction decisions and activities? Number nine, do your country's laws adequately address gender considerations and the special needs of particularly vulnerable categories of persons? And finally, do your country's laws include adequate mechanisms to ensure that your responsibilities are fulfilled and your rights are protected? So food for thought. Uh, I haven't applied this to uh, Alberta's legislation yet, but I, I do plan to. And uh you know, it's, it's an interesting tool. Yeah. And you know, the opportunity uh, can come up frequently to provide input, even just at a local level when you're making your local emergency management bylaws and things like that. So I think it's an important uh, headspace for us to be in as emergency managers thinking about how we can uh, influence uh, policy decisions. Just before we go, I do want to take the time to mention that Epic Podcast is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB Financial. If you want to make a difference for a cause that's important to you, uh, you should know about ATB Cares program. ATB Cares lets you increase the impact of your donations. So you donate to your favorite charity on atbcares.com and ATB will cover the fees if there are any, plus add 15% to your donation. Pretty good deal. So in 2017, only over 4 million was donated to charity through ATB Cares and it's a great way you can support a worthy disaster related cause. Well, uh, that's it for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Jack Lindsay for sharing his time and expertise with us on the topic of EM legislation. If you'd like to find out more or get in touch, you can email us at team at epicpodcast.ca, send us a tweet at username epic underscore underscore podcast, or visit our website at epicpodcast.ca. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of IAEM Canada the International Association of Emergency Managers. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter by searching Epic Podcast. And finally, a big thank you to all of our contributors and to you, our listeners. Please stay tuned for the next episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian.